Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. Uh, and the wrestling world received some very sad news early, earlier this week when uh, James Guffey, also known as Jimmy Rave, passed away on December 12th uh, at the age of 39. Uh, he leaves behind his daughter, Kayla, and his son, Jimmy Jr. His family and friends are planning a memorial for him in Georgia, and his daughter has set up a GoFundMe to help them cover uh, a celebration of life and funeral expenses for Jimmy. Uh, and if you can contribute, please do. The link is in the description for this podcast episode. I also shared it on my Twitter, and you can find it online by going to GoFundMe.com slash F slash Jimmy dash rave dash memorial. Um, seems kind of, uh, I guess, strange, the fact that we have this interview with Jimmy. I guess it could be probably one of his last interviews he ever did. Uh, we recorded this um on October 30th of this year, so basically, I guess, about six weeks before Jimmy passed away. And this is the honest truth. I was always planning on dropping this episode right here on December 17th. This was kind of when I had it earmarked. And, of course, he passed away on December 12th. So um, I wanted to put this interview out. Uh, I think it'd be a good way to celebrate his life and his career. Cause Jimmy was very positive in this interview. We, it was very, Oh, kind of, um, sobering to talk about all the things that he went through. Obviously he had lost his left arm and both legs were amputated, uh, due to complications from MRSA. Obviously he had to retire from wrestling, but he was uh, still adjusting to his new reality. And, uh, it seemed like he was adjusting. Okay. Uh, he was talking about the struggles in this interview, um, you hear his positivity and how hopeful he was for the future. He was in great spirits when we spoke. We talked a lot about his career, uh, shared stories about what he learned from Dusty Rhodes and Ricky Steamboat, tag teaming in TNA with Lance Archer um, as the rock and rave infection. It was Lance Rock back then. Jimmy talked about his feud with AJ Styles in Ring of Honor, his cage match with CM Punk. He talked about the time he spent as Booker for Rampage Pro Wrestling. Uh, like I said, he had his struggles, but he was very positive. And um, I really wanted to still put this interview out this week, uh, not to try and take advantage of the fact he passed away. But I figured I, I was I, I felt if I didn't put it out now, um, I might never put it out. So, um, like I said, this was the day that I had designated to release this December 17th. Uh, he passed away just five days ago. And um, so this is a tribute to, to Jimmy Rave, and we're going to promote his GoFundMe, and if you guys can donate a little bit, that'd be great, um, and just kind of promote the man and kind of have a little bit of a retrospective of his life, almost like a eulogy, if you will, um, a eulogy spoken by him. So I hope you guys are cool with it. I really wanted you guys to hear this interview and let you know that no matter what happened to Jimmy and whatever the circumstances were for his passing uh you know he was still positive and he was thinking about the future and thinking about what he wanted to do with his life and even with his career so uh this is the first time i ever met him i believe uh we talk about this over uh zoom Streamyard, whatever it was so we did get to talk face to face and um so this is for jimmy rafe rest in peace buddy and um i was pulling for you and uh, you were definitely very inspiring with all the things that you had to go through. So this is a, a eulogy for Jimmy Rave, as done by Jimmy Rave. Uh, we paid tribute to Jimmy, to his life, to his career, uh, right here. Talk is Jericho with the uh, late Jimmy Rave. I hope you guys um, get something out of this, because I know I sure did. It's a story that I really wanted to talk about with, with Jimmy Rave. And first and foremost, dude, I mean, you have been wrestling for many, many years. Have we ever crossed paths before? I don't think so. I've done some extra work here and there and um, maybe that way, but nothing else. This could be our first official uh, meeting here. When TNA was, I can't remember, maybe probably in the mid 2000s, that's when you were there. And I remember seeing that. Yes, sir. You were uh, a tag team with Lance Archer, I remember. 
the rock and rave connection, right? Exactly. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk all about that. And I want to hear about your whole wrestling history, but let's talk about kind of to start off what's going on right now. Cause you've had some really tough times to say the least kind of let's discuss all that's happened with you over the last year, Jimmy, and, and kind of fill us in of, of what's been going on where you're at. Yeah. So about maybe September, August last year, like I had been doing some yard work, right? Like I had scraped my arm. It was painful at first, but like not anything I would run to the hospital about, you know what I mean? Like, so I just put some Neosporin on it and um, went about my way. And then sporadically it would like, you know, flare up a little bit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. On, on my left arm, but like nothing crazy, you know? And then um, one day I started having trouble using my hand my pinky and my ring finger were contorting to where like they wouldn't open up. You know, at that point I was like, I need to go to the hospital, you know? And uh, they opened it up and they were like, we're afraid that, well, first off it was MRSA. It ended up being MRSA. And I had had MRSA a couple other times due to dirty rings. You know what I mean? Like that's what my doctors would tell me. They're like, you're a pro wrestler you know, this ring's dirty, you know, like, you know, and when you're on the independence, it's you're taking your chance every night. You know what I mean? Sure. So I go to the, to the ER, they did some tests and they're like, man, we've got to admit you right away. You know, and my arm was like kind of warm, you know what I mean? Like we mm-hmm. to the touch, but they were like, listen, we think you, the infections going to get to your heart soon. So we need to, uh, to be like, super proactive about this. So they put me on IVs and tried to get everything straightened out. You know, they stopped it from getting to my heart, but by then the infection had caused a lot of muscle loss and damage to my ligaments and stuff like that. And they were like, we're going to have to take your arm dude, like above the elbow. Hmm. So like I go in there one day, like a healthy dude. And then the, the next day I come out, you know, with a, no arm and like no way to make money. You know what I mean? Like it was, of course my life changed in an instant, you know, but it was hard to come to terms with everything. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like I've, I've had like a regular job since I was 14, you know what I mean? Like, like, and then you're out of the workforce and then also pro wrestling has been my life since I was, you know, 15. And so, uh, yeah, all that came crashing down and like an instant. And that was just like you said, from from doing yard work, and you scratched yourself. Yeah, yeah. They like now I'm getting a whole bunch of folks like sending me um, messages and talking about their experience with MRSA and stuff. People have told me it's from like spider bites or like the infection. Essentially, my doctor says the infection lives dormant in somebody's nose if they start being a carrier for it, and so they took my arm. They were like, all right, everything seems good. And that was in November of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then about May of 2021, I, w- I started having like real bad pains in my shins. I went back to the ER this time. I didn't like let it go. And I went straight back to the ER and they're like, yeah, man, like we found MRSA in your, your the bottom half of your legs. We're going to have to take your legs because it's trying to get to your heart again. You know what I mean? Again, I was in the ER for a few days and then they tried to lessen everything and make it clear out the infection with just antibiotics. But by then, uh, they were like, your, your body is going to become septic if you don't do something about this now. Just talk about going from worse to even worse. Now, just to explain MRSA, for those who don't know, uh, that's kind of a really horrible infection does it get into your blood or something along those lines or yeah yeah it gets in your bloodstream and it's very antibiotic resistant you know what i mean so they have to throw a whole bunch of stuff at it all at once i mean like and it was just um my time in the hospital was difficult you know they they thought they could have saved one of the legs but then i would have had a wound vac in it what's that it's where they try to clean out where wounds have been before yeah and then they 
they keep you on a lot of antibiotics and try to like clean it out very often. You have to see a wound care specialist often. And they were like, we can save one of your legs maybe that way, or maybe six months from now, we might still have to take it. And I would have had to been in like a nursing home for this wound back thing for, you know, however long, you know, I'm 38. I don't want to live my life in a nursing home. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, like that, you know, like I had to have a hard conversation with my uh, fiance and we decided, you know, let's just go ahead and do both of them at now. Like if I'm going to be in pain, I might as well be in pain all at once, you know? And then we made that decision at the end of June. And then I haven't told anybody in my life really, except for my fam- my immediate family until I made that post on uh, Twitter. What made you decide to, to kind of share it with, with everybody? One of the difficult things for me has been, like, I was a trainer at the CZW Dojo. You know, a lot of my students have started getting really good opportunities, and they want me to come and watch them or something like that. And, like, I literally, especially since my legs happened, I have not been around anybody since then or talked to anybody in wrestling really since then. And so... You know, I needed to just let people know what was going on with me. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. It was something I had to do, you know, because, you know, since I've been out of the hospital, I'm seeing a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, a mental health therapist, you know, and like, you know, I worked in the mental health um, world for a long time. And so I knew that I needed a, for me to be well, I needed to talk about it. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, first of all, you, you lose your arm. Were you still wrestling at that point, Jimmy, before you no. lost your arm? You've been done. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. You know, and it was because, like, everybody was kind of slowing down because of COVID. So I was able to, like, not be around people then, you know. And then, you know, I had a, um, an unfortunate situation where one of my students passed away. And, you know, like, so the guys around my wrestling school, we all went to his um, – funeral and that's when people finally started talking i started talking about my arm a lot more with people but then you know since this w leg amputation i've really kept to myself obviously it takes a lot of courage to come on and start talking about it because there's going to be a lot of questions and all that sort of thing so you must be mentally strong enough to feel that i'm ready now to go out and discuss this yeah absolutely Please support Jimmy Rave's family by making a donation to the GoFundMe set up by Jimmy's daughter, Kayla. The link is in the description for this episode. I also shared it on Twitter, or you can go to GoFundMe.com slash F slash Jimmy dash Rave dash Memorial. When you're starting to consider this, and obviously you really have no choice, right? Because I've... I've and like you mentioned, the, the MRSA from a spider bite. I mean, if you're a Slayer fan, that's what happened to Jeff Hanneman that basically led to his demise long-term was he got bitten by a spider, which destroyed his arm, which means he couldn't play guitar. The youngest, one of the young heart, Matthew Annis, got flesh-eating disease that started from the MRSA. Mm. Bob Hawley almost had it, if you remember, when he landed on a table years ago and sliced his back. He almost lost his arm. This is something that happens more often than you would hope. And I guess what you're saying is once you get it, there is no cure or, or uh, remedy for this. It's something that like I'm going to have to live with and be real careful with infections. You know, I've been super honest with promoters and other wrestlers after I first found out that I had it. Like if anything came up, I'd cancel you know, before then I had that mentality, like you never cancel a show. It's got to be there, you know? Of course. Of course. I remember one time I was supposed to wrestle Tom Lawler and it, it, it ended up being switched to a guy named Tracy Williams who wrestles for ring of honor. And I was really looking forward to the match. And then I canceled a couple of spots to ensure that nobody got, got it. And then a couple of weeks later, it's coming up to the match time. And he just messaged me and he was like, look, man, like, like, I just don't feel safe. And, you know, if I get it, then my family's affected. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. at that point, I was just like, I really need to be careful with this. And like, if I need to take off a couple of weeks, I need to take off a couple of weeks. Is it highly contagious, infectious? That I'm not positive about. I know that like they say in the hospitals, it's 
you know, like super contagious, you know, I'm not sure if it's just skin to skin contact, I'm sure would bring it out often. When you start thinking about having your legs removed, I mean, obviously from a mental health standpoint, probably very depressed. I can only imagine it's almost like becoming a paraplegic. Yeah. Almost a quadriplegic in, in your case. What do you start thinking as far as planning and future and all that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, that was the hardest point. Like one of my students created a GoFundMe account for my arm. That's very difficult for me pride-wise. You know what I mean? I'm a male. I don't want to let go of the fact that I can provide for myself and my family, you know? And so like that was a very difficult thing to, I mean, like I had already started the process to get disability and all this stuff, but like that takes like six months, you know what I mean? And like, how are you supposed to live until that happens? Right. You know, you would think that my process would be quicker. I'm a triple amputee, but I can show you where it says like your stuff is being processed. We'll let you know between four and six months. You know what I'm saying? Like, right, right, right. And it's right. just like uh, difficult to do. And then, like, I also I get offered to do signings and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But like, I don't want it to be just go and do stuff before I'm ready to do it. I also know where that could lead me. You know, like I've had a history of substance abuse, and I know the things that would lead me back to that. And that would be like going out there and like feeling like I'm whoring myself out, you know, and I want fans to come up to me genuinely because they had a good experience with me at a wrestling show and not like because we feel sorry for Jimmy, you know? Right. No, I understand that, man. I mean, I'm I'm putting myself in your position. Like I said, we're meeting today for the first time, but I, I would feel the same, you know, and I also would be kind of like probably even more bitter than you seem to be of just like this and you know and that sort of thing i don't need your charity and i'm sure you have to balance that too it's like it's not other people's fault because they want to help you yeah. but you're still like you said you're a man and you you've always had a job and taking care of yourself so i'm sure there's a fine line of balance there as well absolutely that's just been the biggest thing like um i have a fiance her name's gabby gilbert she works in the wrestling industry too she's a pro wrestler you know like she's like a saint in my eyes because of all the extra stuff that she has to do now for me. You know what I mean? Like it's difficult for me to make my meals or, right. you know, using the bathroom, like changing urinals and stuff like that. You know, like I was fortunate that we live on a first floor, you know, I don't have to go upstairs or anything, but wheeling a wheelchair with one arm is super difficult. You know what I'm saying? Cause like, sure. you got to switch back and forth, you know, the way our, our layout is is like you know like we gotta like cram into the bathroom you know what i'm saying and so she's just been like like i said a saint to me like she's and not because you know she has to be but you know because she wants to but like not only do i don't know what to do about financial stuff but like i never knew like what to expect from the uh, medical side when you're going through it one, you're in a lot of pain, and so they have like you on a ton of pain medications. They actually gave me too much pain medication in the hospital to where they had a Narcan me. I don't know if you know what that is, but like uh, for people that overdose. Like like Pulp Fiction with the shot to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that, but like not, not that much. It was just intense. And I get that medical bill that I posted online. And there's like $1,800 for CPR services, you know, just like crazy stuff like that. Then they tell you, uh, okay, we're going to send you home and we're prescribing a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. But like they only came for a month. And so what do you do with your time? Right. And then my fiance has to take time out to help me get to doctor's appointments and stuff like that. It's a laboring thing. You know what I mean? Well, absolutely. And obviously this is still a very fresh and new thing, but is there, I'm thinking of like, you know, of, of amputees who then get the prosthetic legs and that sort of thing. Is this something that's, that you can possibly do? Yes. Um, so I don't know why, but Medicaid would not pay for an arm prosthetic, mm -hmm. but they're going to pay a majority. I don't know how much it costs, but a majority of my 
um, leg amputations they will pay for. I have a, a doctor's appointment this Thursday to find out where that process will be. Mm-hmm. Did you happen to see the medical bill that I posted? I didn't see it. It's a medical bill that they itemized, and it's for $103,000. And that was just my time in the hospital to learn how to use my wheelchair. So it was three weeks of just being in the hospital. It's not even everything that is included. And I still have to do another two weeks to learn how to use my prosthetics. Well, yeah, I'm actually just looking at it right now. Room and board, $52,000. Yeah. Recreation therapy, 6,600. Physical therapy, 20 grand. Pharmacy, 10 grand. Occupational therapy, 10 grand. So it's quite a, quite an expensive bill and you're just getting started basically, right? Yes, sir. So when you say that you had to take all that time to you, to learn to use your wheelchair, is there a chance to use an electric wheelchair where you can push it with the one arm and use the, the handle, the lever, I guess? The thing was, is like insurance wouldn't cover an electric wheelchair for me. I was supposed to have a wheelchair that had a one-arm drive where it's specially made to like where I can crank it with my right arm. Sure. And it'll it'll project and I can push it side to side. But they told me that it would be there before I left the hospital. And then it was, it'll be there in three weeks. It'll be there in six weeks. I don't know where it's at. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like living with what I got right now. Yeah. The one thing, Jimmy, that I'll say, and, and, and once again, when did you start wrestling? I started beginning October 99. So October 99. So you have the mentality that all of us have, I would assume, especially as independent wrestling. All of us started out independently. You know, I, I did it for six years before I started in WCW. But you have a different mindset of like, like you mentioned, the show must go on. We got to make this happen. There's, it seems much more of a of a mental drive and a mental toughness that we have as wrestlers. Is this something that you think is helping you with all these adversities that you're going through? Yeah, absolutely. I still kind of came up in the in the wild, wild west of the. You had to have grit to like get through. You know, just being an independent wrestler. You know what I mean? Like, not even like that. I came up in a time, even when I was in Ring of Honor, like when I was a heel, like I didn't sign autographs. I didn't like talk to people. You know what I mean? Like, and so like that's Twitter has been difficult for me because like I'm so used to having that separation between the fans and myself. Being like a pro wrestler, I'm able to put on the happy face and like let nobody else know what's going on. And I can be from a distance and like nobody back in the day that like you had problems at home and you know, you're going home to sleep in your car. You know what I'm saying? Like, right, right. 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 None of that. So like, I think that as a pro wrestler is super helpful and like, you know, we're able to make the best of any situation and make things work, you know, because like you said, the show must go on. Please support Jimmy Rave's family by making a donation to the GoFundMe set up by Jimmy's daughter, Kayla. The link is in the description for this episode. I also shared it on Twitter, or you can go to GoFundMe.com slash F slash Jimmy dash rave dash memorial. So let's talk a little bit about, about your about your career. Like you mentioned, you wrestled, uh, started in 99. And when did you stop wrestling? I stopped wrestling uh, 2019. So a good 20-year career. And for this business, even though you're very young, 38 is very young, but still, if you started at 19, probably even earlier than that. Yeah. I started at 15 or whatever it was. Yeah. I know you spent a lot of time in Ring of Honor and you spent a lot of time in Impact. Which one did you prefer now that you're looking back? And kind of what were some of the, the, the highlights of your career in each of those companies? Because both of those companies 10 years ago were really like the vying for the number two promotion in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I started at Ring of Honor. The first time I wrestled for Ring of Honor was in 2002, so their first year of a company. And I stayed there until uh, 2007 when I went to TNA. The great thing about Ring of Honor, and this is something that I see with like AEW and somewhere like Game Changer, where everybody puts the company on their back and wants it to do well. That's right. So like you didn't have the backbiting and the, you know, trying to somebody over to get their spot type thing. You know what I mean? And so everybody went out there to have the best match. And if you didn't have the best match, 
there was somebody like Christopher Daniels that would like pull you aside and say, Hey, this is the stuff that you can work on or Brian Danielson or low key at the time. We also had a lot of great minds of the past that would come through ring of honor in those early years, like Ricky steamboat, Jim Cornette, dusty Rhodes. You know what I mean? The thing about it is like, I, I went to um, Sprayberry high school and we're Cody went to Lasseter high school and we were rivals. I went to the same high school as like Xavier Woods and okay, yeah, well, <laughs> and all those guys. I always felt like that was the cool thing about Ring of Honor. It was like your high school, you know what I mean. And then we would get we did a feud with Combat Zone Wrestling, and it really was when we did the blow off. We did the uh, Cage of Death that Combat Zone does every year. One side of the National Guard Armory in Philadelphia was CZW, and the other half was Ring of Honor, and they're trying to kill each other in the audience, you know what I mean, before we even get out there. And so, like, it was just that kind of thing was always great about Ring of Honor. I was very fortunate that I was really good friends with CM Punk, and he really looked out for me there. You know, that my first big feud was with him, and we blew it off, like, where he, you know, we're both standing on a steel cage he gives me a superplex off the steel cage like those big moments in my ring of honor career like i could never replace them with anything but when i went to tna like i had been doing stuff for them throughout their whole existence like i was doing a lot of their explosion stuff especially in the early days when it was an nwa thing because i was the nwa world junior heavyweight champion at the time so when i finally started working there full time late 2000s um i had just came from ring of honor where i'm wrestling 20 30 minutes every night i had just came off a tour of dragon gate where i had been in japan wrestling again 20 30 minutes every night so when i get to um impact it was difficult for me because i go from wrestling those 20 minute singles matches to a five minute tag match with entrances, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just like, the good thing was, is at that time, TNA was doing 10 to 12 house shows a month. And that's where I really learned a lot. Christian was somebody that always took a, a liking to me. So I would watch some of the shows with him, pick his brain about why they do certain things. And then every night he was in the main event with Kurt Angle and they're doing 30 minute matches. And I'm, you know, I get to watch that every night. That was awesome. Just talking a little bit about when you were in Ring of Honor, you mentioned that Steamboat was there and, and Dusty was there. What kind of advice would those guys give you, Cornette, et cetera? I was fortunate to, I got to wrestle Dusty in his turnbuckle promotion. And so, like, Dusty was the person that taught me about moments in wrestling instead of, you know, like how to do ABCD. You know, he taught me about the moment in wrestling. And I feel like nowadays, more than any, the moment in pro wrestling is the big thing. I I believe that early Ring of Honor stuff was about, you know, good technical wrestling. But once we started doing storylines and creating moments, things just went through the roof. Mm -hmm. I felt like Dusty was helpful for us to envision that. And then Ricky Stimo was just amazing about how to interact with the crowd, especially as a baby face. He taught me so much about how you don't have to clap for people to beg them to clap with you, but more, maybe it's just a look that you give the audience, you know, you know, maybe it's just taking time with setting up a move to where like you give people a little bit more time to grow with the move, you know? Yeah. Ricky was always great for that. He, he would take his time in telling you what he was thinking, but but if when you finally heard the whole story, it would make sense. But he he would he's very slow and very thinking when he's talking. What if we try this? And be like, come on, come on, quicker, quicker, quicker. <laughs> but when he's done with his five minute high spot, it really makes sense. Now, obviously, it works, right? Yeah, absolutely. I meant I remember um, one thing he taught me was uh, I was watching Samoa Joe versus CM Punk, and it was like one of the ones that Meltzer gave five stars to. And I was watching it with Steamboat. And there was a guy in the front row wearing a CM Punk shirt, right? And then 
Punk and Samojo are wrestling around, wrestling around. And Joe powders and goes to that guy and acts like he's going to give him a five and flicks him off, right? And then they go around again and see him. Punk rolls out. And the guy's wearing a punk shirt. He goes to high five him and gives him a, and flicks him off, right? And then they go and have this five-star match. Steamboat could not stop thinking about that. And he was telling me, like, you could have alienated that fan to never want to come back again. Mm. Now everybody's focused on him and both the heel and the face just healed him out. You know what I mean? That's a great point. Made, made him feel bad about being a fan. You never want that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you know who else told me that was Jado and Gato. Like I did the best of stupid juniors in 2008. And like somebody was talking about how, like we were in a discussion at one of those four hour long dinners. We were talking about how to not alienate the crowd. And like, I never thought about this until they started t- talking about that. Even if you're like friends with a fan through wrestling, you guys became acquainted and you do something to upset that friend. They're never going to spend money on that wrestling show again. Mm-hmm. Like I just thought of those kind of things you can't teach without having fans around, you know? It's interesting. There was uh, uh, it, when we're recording this, it, it was Halloween yesterday. And I was just going through, I always kind of go through, you know, Instagram and whoever's dressed up as a Chris Jericho, I screenshot it. And then I post like, you know, 10 at a time or whatever it may be. And I saw one of this little baby, the parents had dressed him up as Nick Gage with a little plastic pizza cutter and everything. And so I text Nick, I just sent him the pictures like, oh, that's so great. And that's so sweet. I said, dude, just go on that page and send a comment. There'll be fans of yours for life. Absolutely. And other people will see that you commented on that. And because, listen, it's all a work. We get it. But people are, are fans. They're still fans for a reason. And you never want someone to feel bad because they're a fan. If we're wrestling and I'm the bad guy and I tell a, fa- a fan to fuck off and Jimmy Rave is the good guy and at the end of the day, you beat me and give him a high five, then everything's cool. If you tell him to fuck off too, then he's going to be like, why am I even here? Everybody hates me. Absolutely. And like, and the thing that you told Nick Gage, it doesn't take any effort. Right. Such a small thing. And like, I'm learning that now. My story ended up getting like regular news coverage, like a Newsweek people. And then like, I got people hitting me up from Germany, Hungary, Austria, like all saying that they saw it on their mainstream media. Right. And so they take the time to DM me that I can at least like write something back and be like thank you so much because that it does mean the world to me that like people care about me across the world you know what i mean and like you don't always know that being the villain the whole time my old entrance in ring of honor people used to throw toilet paper in the ring when i would come into the ring they would like shower they would toilet paper i would throw it back at them and like we'd have this like fun interaction but it was my way of letting people in the show you know what I mean? That doesn't hurt me and gives them something to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, sure. And then everybody wins, you know? Why were they throwing toilet paper at you? It started off with this one guy and I reacted to it. That was another thing I learned from Dusty was I, I was watching one of their shows one night, Barry Windham reacted to something and it was in like, like some random town in Georgia. And when we came back, those fans remembered what he reacted to. And so I've always had that mentality. Like one guy like threw it in the ring and I go, you know, who can through this? You know what I mean? And then like, I'm like trying to find it, you know, and then the next show, like 20 people threw it, you know, and then, and then it just erupted from there. It's your version of the uh, streamers that they throw in Cork and all. Yep. Yep. (laughs) And like when I went for, for my first tours, of Japan, they threw the toilet paper at me. It was awesome. How did you like working in Japan? I, I loved it. You know, I really loved wrestling for Dragon Gate. It was a great company to wrestle for. They really took care of us. You know, it had that hybrid uh, lucha style too, you know. So you're doing six mans and tags every night, you know what I mean? Maybe one singles match a tour. And so that was amazing. And then I loved New Japan. You know, like you can't, get any better than than that you know who'd you work with when you were in new japan so i did the best of the super junior so i 
I wrestled Liger. I wrestled um, Naito, Yujiro, like those guys. I was supposed to wrestle Finn Balor. He was the only other Gaijin on the tour. He gets hurt the first night. And so, like, I was going crazy being the only English person on the tour, you know? Wow. What year was that? 2008. Wow. So Finn got hurt and you were the only guy that spoke English in the whole crew. Yeah, it was brutal. I used to have that. I was actually on uh, Jado and Gato and Fuyuki was his name. The team, no respect. It was Fuyuki Gun. And same thing. They'd be going over their matches and I'd just be sitting in the corner like an idiot because they're all speaking super fast Japanese. And then, they, and then they just look at me and go, okay, what do you want to do here? And I'm like, uh, You're right. what's just happened? Can somebody tell me what's going on? The fact that you were the only uh, gaijing on that tour is actually a little bit of a, of, of a credit to you, I would say. Yeah, they, I came right back for another tour right after that. And I worked with um, Kanemoto and I got to do a couple six mans with Yuji Nagata. I was on loan from TNA and I remember Kurt Angle. He goes, just listen to Yuji Nagata. He's he's the man. Yeah. And he told me a story like how like how well their big title match went and how Yuji Nagata like was able to take his ideas and make it more for the crowd that they were wrestling in front of. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, even when I was a traveling heel, like on the independence where I'm like, like I would wrestle the number one baby face on the show and, and then go off on my way. Mm-hmm. I would often ask them like if what we had, if it sounded like that was something that their crowd would be into, you know what I mean? Because it would be, um, Stupid of me, like, not to think that, like, hey, we're in a different place. My same stuff is going to work here, you know? Sure, of course. That's part of being internationally successful is you have to be diverse enough to change your style. Absolutely. Please support Jimmy Rave's family by making a donation to the GoFundMe set up by Jimmy's daughter, Kayla. The link is in the description for this episode. I also shared it on Twitter, or you can go to GoFundMe.com slash F slash Jimmy dash rave dash memorial. Just to go back to what you were saying a few minutes ago when you were talking about having all these people from all around the world DMing you and and never really knowing just how much of an influence you had. This is another thing I was going to ask you now that you are, you know, a triple amputee with this giant fan base it's quite possible that there'll be other people who have amputations that will be looking to you for help, advice of people that have been through kind of adversity like you have. Is that something that that you're ready to kind of accept? I mean, I know at first you don't really want to be that guy, but this is who you are now. Yeah. When I came out about my substance abuse, like I was the one that kind of came out and told everybody like, Hey, Cause like right after I left TNA, I went and checked myself in a rehab and then I started working in the field of substance abuse and mental health. Oh, wow. And so like I opened up this center in Georgia that is for mental health and substance abuse. And I was the director of that center. And then I ended up becoming this big recovery guy in Georgia. When that happened, I started doing a lot of podcasts. I was doing like Lagania's podcast. I did Cabana's podcast. I knew that would open up that floodgate. You know, if somebody wants to talk, like we can talk. Like, but at, at this point, like, I don't know what I could tell them that they probably couldn't tell me. You know what I mean? Like, it's so new for me right now. Like, I, right. I need other people's stories right now. You know, I had this one person hit me up and they were uh they had the right leg amputated at the hip and i was reading their story and they said they got it from chemo i was just so floored by that you're you're doing chemotherapy to save your life and then you get MRSA that takes something away from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know like i am 38 and i still am healthy like you know besides these three amputations like my doctors are saying i'm healthy right now but like, I understand that there's going to be people worse off than me. And like, if they need to talk, then I'm willing to be that person to have those conversations. It seems pretty incredible to me that you're already in that field of being a, like you mentioned, being a, a counselor. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that, I mean, gosh, 
it's all right there for you to, to pick that up again should should you choose and when you're ready to take it in a completely different direction if you if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And like when I was in the hospital, that's what they make you talk to a clinical psychologist right, right in there. And like, she's telling me this, what I was telling her was I need to get through all what I need to get through before I go back to like working with people. One of the things that is the most difficult in that field is, is working one-on-one with people because you're taking on their stuff as well as your own stuff. And so like that can be difficult too. Yeah, I can see that being very draining, especially now, like you said, if you're still fairly new into your situation. Yeah, but I'd rather them reach out than not. You know what I mean? Of course. Going back to your wrestling career, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. One of them was where you were billed from. Most people are billed from you know, Winnipeg or billed from Atlanta, but uh, <laughs> you were billed from West Africa, from Ghana, by way of Georgia. Where, where did that all start from? Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> In Ring of Honor, I was teamed up with a guy named Prince Nana, mm. and he he was a prince from Ghana. And so uh, my finisher at the time was Ghanaria. <laughs> and so like... That's a good one. It, it was a great thing. Like that was probably the most fun I've had wrestling. Like my in the group for a while is myself, Alex Shelley and Abyss, just two of the greatest guys I could ever team with. Like we just had a ton of fun. What was the Ghanaria? It's like Evan Board's finisher. It's where you like swing like that. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yep, yep. But you were stealing other people's finishers too. I remember that and claiming them as your own. Yeah, that was the start of it. Like uh, when I turned heel, I started doing the Styles Clash, calling it the Rave Clash. And then um, AJ was actually not working for the company at the time. And then when he came back, we automatically had something like a story right there. And AJ and I grew up together. In wrestling, you know, we both came from Wild Side around the same time. And so, yeah, we, like, I started doing it with AJ. You know, he eventually beat me for the move. And then I had to figure out a different one. And it was the pedigree. And I called it Greetings from Ghana. Mm. And that was because just listening to a crowd, like, I was listening again to Ricky Steamboat. He was cutting a promo in front of the crowd. And it just came out online that he was going to be a producer at wwe so the ring of honor crowd started turning on him and he was like this is like 2005 and he was saying how he was putting over triple h to the ring of honor crowd and they hated him for that (laughs) and so i was like well i know where my next move's coming from Uh, have you heard from from a lot of these guys because you mentioned some pretty big names that that you've had great feuds with and then since all these calamities hit you are you hearing from a lot of guys within the business yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like Mick Foley just helped me out a ton. He just did a giveaway for and sent me a great donation. And uh, Cedric Alexander, I've heard from Kyle O'Reilly. Like, I, I stay in contact with a lot of people now. You know, Drew Gulak has been somebody that's, like, stayed there with me and, like, checked up on me all the time. Lance Archer is. I had a a uh, hand in her training, Layla Hirsch. Oh. Yeah, so she's been great. I, I've been really blessed to get to wrestle the who's who of like wrestling right now or had a hand in training them or something. So I, I get to talk to a lot of people right now. When you were in Impact and we're talking about the Rock and Rave connection with Lance Archer and, and Christy Hemi, was that kind of uh, the, the the peak of Impact? Is that when like Hogan was there and Bischoff was there? Was that that time frame? It was right before Hogan and Bischoff. Gotcha. I don't know, like, if you would call when they were there, like, the peak of it. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, right. I thought the peak was while we were doing so many house shows, you know, because everybody's making a little bit more money, there, you know? Right. You know, I was on 80% of the house shows, and that was great for me because I got to wrestle. The other thing that I'm passionate about is um, developing talent. And like learning how to book from different bookers. And so like we'd be on these um, house show loops and every day I would like go in and sit down at like Dutch Mantel's office or D'Lo Brown or Scott Demore. You know what I mean? Like anybody that was there at the time that was one of our agents and like they made that time in my life super fun. 
Let's talk about, about kind of the, the, the rock and rave. What was the idea? Who, who put that together? And tell us about some of the, the big moments you had with them. Yeah, so like um, when I got the call from Vince Russo that we like he wanted me to come, they were doing this tag team battle royal at a pay per view, and he was like, "I'm I'm going to put you in the with Lance Hoyt, and he's managed by Christy Hemme, and that was it. And then we were just three people that I don't know why I was with them. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. What I did know is I didn't have a contract, and they did. I'm working night to night. So I'm trying to think of like ways to stay on board and get a contract. And so Jeff Jarrett's kids were playing Guitar Hero backstage often. And then like Petey Williams and the Machine Guns are playing Guitar Hero. And so I was like, maybe this is something, you know. And Pat Kinney was one of the producers who really helped me put together. You know what I mean? Right. He was like, Christy Hemme is actually like a really good singer. And she has her own band. But, you know, like we wanted her to be tone deaf and like we were a great band, but we're really just part of the game. You know what I mean? And it's just the controls aren't plugged in, you know, and he like tried to like help us look more like like an 80s hair band and stuff like that. That, that was, I, I think, when I was saying peak, I, maybe I meant for like maybe the most focus as far as media and that sort of thing. But yeah. the peak of TNA was always when they had their own stars built you're talking about Samoa Joe and AJ Styles and you know you guys and that's when you could really see there was a buzz going on about the company because it was homegrown and that's what you need to do to really make it as, as a new promotion absolutely I 100% agree so as we start to, to wind down uh Jimmy so now that you have the situation that you have you've accepted it you're moving forward it might be too early to even ask but what are some of your plans for the future now and, and what would you like to do to kind of continue forward yeah i mean of course like my biggest goal is like being able to land a job at at a company like i've been transitioning to backstage work for a long time um i used to book a promotion in um georgia you know and where your peers and and people in georgia used to vote for yearly awards and we like i won booker of the year three years in a row for that place and like Mm. but like i was using my relationships with people that like I would work with in Ring of Honor to like, I used to use Adam Pierce, Cole Cabana. I used Brian Danielson when, when he was on for that, Justin Roberts thing where he took him with the tie. Right. Like I brought him in during that month. I saw um, Dax Harwood at a show randomly in North Carolina and myself and Luke Gallows wrestled him. Like I started bringing him down here and putting him, on TV doing 30 minute time limit draws because I only had him for a month because he was so good. And as soon as somebody saw him, he was gone. But like, I've gotten to work with a lot of uh, talent in a backstage role um, these last five or six years. And so like, I would love to do that. I still, half of my DMs are for this amputation thing. The other half of my DMs are like people that want me to watch their match and help critique them and, that stuff and so i still love doing that so i don't know like i i would love to fall in that category and not like have to rely on disability you know what i mean like right be able to work for what i earn other than that i'm really taking it day by day right now well that's the thing dude i mean the, the, you have the one thing that's very valuable in wrestling and that's a lot of experience you know, triple amputee or not, your your mind is still very focused and solid. So you, you don't even have to travel if you didn't want to, to do that. You could watch the shows. And like you said, comment and send emails and do virtual, you know, meetings and that sort of thing. So there's definitely uh, a whole lot of value there. Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I would love to do something like that. You know, like I had pitched this to TNA years ago, but when things started getting bad for people, that was the thing that I felt like TNA didn't have was the wellness program that WWE has. Right. You know, like you would have somebody on the staff that is another pro wrestler that has credentials to be able to help people that are in need of help that, you know, like you don't have to fire somebody their first incident. You know what I mean? Maybe you can, that person could have a conversation with them and it never gets out that it, 
was that bad or whatever, you know? Right. It was like real peer support where people are, I need to talk because I'm having, I'm going through these things or, or if I saw it, I can have that conversation with them, you know, without them getting in trouble. Like, I just think that especially pro wrestlers, sometimes they don't realize when they're like walking down a bad path and they're about to fall off a cliff and like, they don't ask for help before that. And like, they don't have to hit that bottom. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Cause you have that side of the coin to you as well. You know all about that too. Yeah, absolutely. I guess last question for you is uh, when you think about all the matches that you have, is there one that stands out that's your favorite? Of course, my cage match with Punk is a big one for for my uh, archives. But uh, my match with Nigel McGuinness, we had it in Liverpool. And we did one of these fight without honor. It was just a magical night. I had broken my jaw about five weeks earlier wrestling Samoa Joe. So I, I wrestled with it broken for five weeks just to get to this big blow off match. And like Nigel was hurt and I just valued the match knowing how much we had to go through to get through it. And it was just a really special match for me. When you look back, do you, do you miss being in the ring? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like that's part of the reason why I, you know, I wanted to stay on as a trainer is like, you still get to be in the ring, but, my thing was always psychology anyway. Like I was always like under 200 pounds, but like use my mind to um, stay relevant. And so being able to teach that is something that I, I value a lot. Well, Jimmy, you've been dealt some tough cards, man, but I think there's a whole big future for you here in a lot of different ways. And uh, I think the whole wrestling community is going to, is going to get behind you and stand behind you for those reasons, man. And I appreciate you, you coming and talking and being open about all this, because I'm sure it wasn't easy, but uh, but you've got a, a new fan in me, man. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your hospitality and, and taking your time out to do this for me. Well, I hope that was a fitting tribute to Jimmy. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it and heard kind of the positivity in his voice. And I just want to say rest in peace, uh, uh, Jimmy Rave. Please help Jimmy's family if you can by supporting the GoFundMe set up by his daughter. Once again, you can find the link on my Twitter or in the description for this episode by visiting GoFundMe.com slash F slash Jimmy dash Rave dash Memorial. Once again, rest in peace, Jimmy Rave. And to all you guys, hug your loved ones. Uh, You just never know. Uh, Life is very fleeting. And um, just live every day like it's your last. So I love you guys. And... um, I'll talk to you guys again uh, next week.